Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. The elections last month produced historic results as regards representation of African Americans in the electoral hierarchy of Baltimore City and the state of Maryland. The governor, attorney general, state superintendent of schools, and state treasurer are all accomplished black men. Here in Baltimore City, black male leaders include the mayor, the city council president, the controller, the newly elected city state's attorney, and the police commissioner. This is not to say that black women have not also risen to positions in which they have shaped the trajectory of Baltimore and the state. The Speaker of the House in Annapolis, Delegate Adrian Jones, and Prince George's County Executive Angela Alsobrook's endorsements of Wes Moore for governor were considered a considerable boost to his nascent political career. Not too long ago, the mayor of Baltimore, the state's attorney, the city council president, even the head of the Enoch Pratt Library were prominent African-American women. In September, the Reverend Kevin Slayton, an activist and preacher who has been involved in politics and policy for years, wrote an op-ed in the Baltimore Sun in which he stated that the representation of African-Americans in the halls of power could all be, quote, the revelation of hopes our ancestors dreamed about. But for many black men, their dreams are dreams deferred. Dr. Slayton has called for a convening of elected black officials to explore what can be done to help black men succeed. What would such a convening look like? What could it accomplish? We talked about it last month with Reverend Slayton, the senior pastor at Northwood Appold United Methodist Church and an adjunct professor at Lancaster Theological Seminary. He joined me in Studio A. Dr. Lester Spence joined us as well. He's a professor of political science and Africana studies at Johns Hopkins University, who specializes in the study of black, racial, and urban politics. He joined us on Zoom. A little later in the show, I spoke with Congressman Kwaisi Mfume. This is an encore presentation of Midday. Because our show was pre-recorded, we aren't taking any new calls or online comments today. Reverend Slayton began our conversation about the possibility of a convening of black officials with a nod to history. I think it's important, um, one, to look to look back before we go forward. And if you think about um, the, the role and the image of African-American males as it relates to electoral politics and positions of power, one has to look at um, immediate following Reconstruction in 1867, um, once black men are given the right to vote in 1867, studies show that 80% of all black men in former Confederate uh, states registered immediately to vote. And the, 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 the interesting thing is that the first person to ascend or to benefit from that is Hiram Revels, a uh, African-American who was ordained you know, to, to minister here in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, moves to um, Mississippi, and three years later, he's elected to office, the first African-American um, elected to the U.S. Senate. He's followed then by the first African-American, um, Joseph Rainey, to the U.S. Congress. And then there's six other brothers that come behind them. And so you've got this period of about 12, 13 years where, where black men are a part of the policymaking process. And as history has proven, Tom, um, it began to paved the way for some 2,000 black office holders in different areas of government. 
and the the white majority was incensed, and they began to roll back uh, systemically through policy. Uh, the opportunities for these. And so by 1901, George Henry White, representing North Carolina, literally closes the door and shuts the light for the next generation of national level representative African-American males. And so this piece that I write um, sort of says what happens in a society that is very concerned um, in ways that can be detrimental to communities when men of color, particularly African-American men, gather um, if you look just past Reconstruction, you look to 1919, the Elaine uh, massacre in Arkansas, um, you had these African-American men who were sharecroppers. They recognized they were being gypped as prices began to increase exponentially over a couple of years. They go from seven cents, you know, a barrel or, or whatever it is, a pound that they're selling. And within two or three years, cotton is now going for over a dollar. These guys decide, you know, we want sort of our fair share of this. They can they gather, they have a convening at a church, you know, the white persons of Arkansas say, no, we're not going to allow you to benefit from your power. Um, and they just begin killing folks. One of the persons who's killed is Silas, um, his name is Silas Hoskins. He's the uncle of the fame writer Richard Wright. So when he writes uh, Native Son, this is actually sort of what he's referencing to, but, but it, it shows then that there is always, to what the article says, the work of the sister by the name of uh, Camille Busset, that historically institutional alarms are go off when black men gather. But no one's more aware of this uh, racial bias and conscious than professional African-American men. So we emerge on November 9th in the state of Maryland. We've got an African-American male uh, that's in the top leadership of the state. Uh, he'll, he'll sit next to Derek, um, who is now the second, what is he, state treasurer? He's the treasurer, Derek, so he's treasurer. one of three Derek, people on yeah, the Board of Public Derek, Works. Derek Dacey, yeah, these two, and then you have a minority and one of our Jewish sisters who will be the state controller. This is unprecedented. And so part of the impetus for me was going into the new year. Um, I always do sermons that you know reflect on the previous year. And just for this particular Sunday coming into 2022, I just want to Google because in Baltimore, we're always playing the race, race game of how many folks were murdered. You know, you do a nice piece of recognizing them. I appreciate that on, on this show. But we'll look back in 1971, the Baltimore Sun reports 337 murders in Baltimore City. Granted, the population was was much larger, but 337 murders. And here I am preparing to preach and I look at it for we end 2021 with 330. Tom, that says that leadership, uh, citizenry, all of us, we've been very complicit and okay with the reality of majority black men losing their lives at that rate. So it, 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 it begs the question, how does this now change now that the, the, the prayers of, of our ancestors who, who fought and marched and bled that, you know, if we were only to get people who look like us in these positions, these things would change. I think it requires that that group of leaders come together and talk. But the question is, who, 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 can, who can convene that? Yeah. And, and Lester Spence, um, you know, it's, it's often said that the, uh, from folks that I talk to in 
the black activist community that the problems of the black community, whatever they may be, have to be solved by black people. Uh, the solutions, the institutions have to be black-led. Um, the 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 irony of that uh, assertion, of course, is that black folks didn't create systemic racism. They didn't create the legacy of slavery. They didn't create, uh, you know, uh, discrimination in housing and education and health care, et cetera. Um, but, but all of a sudden, black folks are supposed to fix the problem on their own. What, what, what do you think about um, Kevin Slayton's idea of this convening of black elected officials to talk about these problems exclusive of white elected officials or, or really any white influence at all? So, um, first of all, I'd like to say that um, I appreciate his attempt, uh, his attempt to situate this moment um, or this idea in history, right? And I think that's really, really important for the reasons he stated. But what I like to do is make a couple of, 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 of uh, gentle kind of modifications to that story that I think are important when taking on the question of what the conditions are under which black people should be getting together to figure out black issues, right? So it's not just that during that re reconstruction period that black people begin to vote, it's actually that reconstruction period in which black people change what the uh, how the country functions itself and then what how democracy functions, right? So before reconstruction, we were almost literally a federated state, a uh, federated nation of individual states. And an individual was a citizen of the state first and then becomes a citizen of the nation. Reconstruction actually changes that, where we now have a, na a national citizen. 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments don't just give black people rights, but in effect creates the United States of America with a robust federal government. Then secondarily, it was those black political officials who created some of the first public schools, some of the first attempts to uh, to progressively tax income in ways that would help everybody. So then they actually, in doing that, they change what liberty, what freedom means, and they actually articulate the first vision of what could be called positive uh, liberty, the idea that the government should do something for its citizens. And they do that for everybody, and it starts with black people. So that's the first modification. The second modification, though, is when, reconst when Reconstruction ends, it doesn't just end because black people vote. It ends because in 1890, what you have is an aggressive attempt by black people and whites in the populist movement to reorient uh, the economy in a way that moves us away from Robert Barron's. Because we've got a uh, significant increase in wealth inequality, uh, whereby people, where Robert Barron's extraction, extracting wealth from black people and from whites, right? So that 1919 moment he's talking about happens after the black vote's taken away. That happens because it's not just about white supremacy, it's white supremacy and capitalism, right? So we have to think about that. It's not just about black people getting together. It's not just about black elected officials getting together. It's about black elected officials getting together in order to reorient the government in a way that helps everybody but doing that through the unique in, uh problems that black men face now with that said there's there are opportunities and challenges in the idea of black people getting together by ourselves on the one hand the opportunities are that we're able to really wrestle with 
in a deep way, the significant challenges that make black men a unique gender race combination within American society broadly and then Maryland specifically. Right. That's that's the opportunity. The challenge, though, is that going back to history, there's a moment that begins around 1906 or so, again, after the black vote's been taken away, where the primary way that black people get together to deal with black problems is reform. That is to say, we take the least of these and we figure out how to make the least of these fit within society, as opposed to figuring out how do we make society change in general. So that's the opportunities and the challenges. And that I think that 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 richer history gives us a way to really situate re that reconstruction moment in that moment and then connect it to the one we're in now. Dr. Lester Spence is a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University. Reverend Dr. Kevin Slayton is with me here in Studio A. He's senior pastor at Northwood Apple United Methodist Church. We're talking about an essay Dr. Slayton wrote in the Baltimore Sun a few weeks ago calling for essentially a new deal for the black community. Um, uh, Reverend, Reverend Slayton, Reverend Slayton, let me, before we go to a break, um, Wes Moore, our newly elected governor, has said, I'm not interested in making history. I'm interested in making a difference. Um, he has, I think, kind of downplayed the, uh, his race and the historic nature of his election. Um, uh, folks have accused President Obama of doing the same thing. You know, we're here for all people. I'm governing everybody, that, that kind of stuff. Um, is the, the, the opportunity that Wes Moore uh, has... Uh, you know, premised in his racial identity. Uh, I mean, is is that I is that opportunity you know invigorated, enlivened by the fact that he is the first black governor of a state? Maybe yes and no. Um, Wes is, is is brilliant. He is he is the, the one of the best uh, to emerge from our community. Um, there is, with that, an expectation um, that just comes in with it, with with being the first African American to ascend to that position. Um, at the same time, it is a political position, which means politics will always be at play. Um, clearly, we want the best for him. We want him to succeed. Uh, what that will look like, we will see in the, the coming months. You're listening to an encore presentation of Midday. We're talking about the possibility of political leaders shaping a new deal for addressing the challenges faced in particular by black men. My guests in this conversation, which took place in late November, were the Reverend Dr. Kevin Slayton, the senior pastor at Northwood Apold United Methodist Church, and Dr. Lester Spence, a political scientist on the faculty of Johns Hopkins University. Coming up after a quick break, we'll continue our conversation with Representative Kwaisi Mfume, the congressman whose district includes Baltimore City. Our show is on tape today, so we aren't able to take any new calls or online comments. I'm Tom Hall. We're glad you're with us. Stick around. Welcome back to Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us on this archive edition of Midday, we're listening to a program we first aired in late November, inspired by an essay in the Baltimore Sun by the Reverend Kevin Slayton. 
in which he called for a summit of black leaders to coordinate a response to the challenges faced by black men. In addition to Dr. Slayton, who is the senior pastor at Northwood Appled United Methodist Church, our panel for this discussion included Dr. Lester Spence, an author and professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we aren't taking any new calls or online comments today. I also spoke with Representative Kwaisi Mfume. Congressman, welcome back. Um, thank you very, very much for the chance to be here. And what do you think of uh, Kevin Slayton's idea of a convening of black elected officials? I, obviously, that would include you, folks like Wes Moore, uh, the, attorney, the new attorney general, Anthony Brown and others, uh, Brandon Scott, mayor of Baltimore. What, what do you think of that idea? Well, I think it makes a lot of sense because in the absence of being together and talking, one can only assume where everybody else is on certain issues. But more importantly, in talking and in having a chance to assign duties, um, we're able to find a way to divide the labor. I mean, the ant community does it rather effectively. There's no reason why uh, human beings are not to do that. Some people, I think, will tend to think that all of the heavy lifting should come from one area. But, you know, when you think about poverty, and jobs and education and crime and health care in our community, there are pillars of strength and individuals who have a great deal of influence in that area. It's always better, I think, to know what the objectives are, number one, and number two, how do we individually and collectively reach those objectives, and then how do we measure what we've done or what we've not done? Do you expect, would you expect uh, any blowback, any criticism uh, if uh, it was a, a meeting that, that was limited only to African-American office holders and uh, not including white counterparts? Well, it depends on how it's framed. If it's to exclude other thoughts, <clears throat> excuse me, and other ideas and other people, then you've got to explain why that's the case. If that case is made, I don't think people will have a problem with the idea of persons who happen, in this case, to be black, to sitting down and talking to one another <laughs> collectively. Um, but if it's framed in such a way where you say, I don't want any other ideas, I don't want any help, and I don't want any allies, even though you've been an ally up to this point, then it loses credibility. One of the things that's interesting here, Tom, is that it's a great idea, but it is not a new idea. And I would call your attention 50 years ago, back to 1972, uh, four months, uh, four years, excuse me, after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, this sort of desire to meet collectively began to build and build and build. And in that 48-month period, it culminated uh, 50 years ago with Black Americans from every spectrum across the country gathering in Gary, Indiana, and what became known as the Black Political Summit. The late Gary Mayer, uh, Richard Hatcher, organized it. They drew about 10,000 people from all 50 states. Um, unrest was simmering in the Black community. People wanted answers. Some people thought that, oh, it had to be a political response, and others said, no, there's too much expertise in too many areas not to have everybody weigh in on this. There was, interestingly enough, at the end of that period, no consensus except that everybody agreed to disagree. And the one thing that they agreed on was a clarion call for self-empowerment, which was announced uh, uh, 
on May 19th, right after it concluded, uh, which was the birthday of Malcolm X. So there was a lot of symbolism there, but there were a lot of individuals there that uh, today are not necessarily the people we think of, but represent, and in many ways, this desire to get something done. Coretta Scott King participated. Jesse Jackson participated. Louis Farrakhan, uh, Bobby Seale, the founder of the Black Panthers, Barbara Jordan, the congresswoman, uh, Carl Stokes, Muhammad Ali. I could go down a whole list. They were not saying we don't want any white participation or white ideas. What they were saying is we need to figure out what we can do before we go to find others and ask them to do it with us. Yeah, and Lester Spence, um, uh, Governor-elect Moore, has surrounded himself with a very diverse uh, group of advisors and and, uh, inner circle. His chief of staff, a very brilliant guy named Fagan Harris, an African-American, Aruna Miller, his lieutenant governor-elect, a very gifted uh, legislator and uh, the first East Asian uh, person to hold statewide office in uh, the state of Maryland. And, you know, there was uh, certainly no red wave as had been uh, expected across the country. But here in Maryland, uh, Republicans even lost two, two seats in the Senate. Um, so, you know, Democrats picked up uh, a couple of seats there. Um, the Republicans have actually just changed their uh, Maryland Matters reporting this morning. They've changed their leadership. Uh, Brian Simon Air is uh, out as the Republican minority leader. Steve Hershey from the Upper Shore is in. Um, what do you expect, Lester Spence, from uh, this new administration that is uh, more diverse than any administration the state of Maryland has ever known? Well, well, that's a great question, but I'm not a political analyst. analyst. I'm a political scientist. So what I'm going to do is far, I'm going to do two things. First is I'm going to give a shout out to Renee Hatcher. Renee Hatcher is a progressive lawyer, and she's actually uh, the daughter of the mayor that uh, that Representative Mfume listen, uh, noted in talking about the National Black uh, Politics Convention. Her work here in Baltimore was tremendously important both in kind of developing a progressive black uh, wing in Baltimore uh, more broadly. And then and he's, she's indirectly related to some of the policies that somebody like a Brandon Scott articulated when he was first elected. So I have to give her a shout out, give him Fume's uh, turn to history. But the second thing I want to do is talk about that conception of framing that uh, Representative Fumi talked about. One of the mistakes that Obama made, uh, and we're still paying for it, is that when is that he actually didn't quite understand that that politics is not just something that's static, but it's something that can be produced through rhetoric. And when he was in office as the first, he had the possibility to re-articulate the function of politics in a way that brought people uh, together around issues that are uh, that uh, that black people more specifically have to wrestle with. So to that extent, if we think about the opportunity that Westmore has now, he has a similar opportunity, an opportunity to actually use politics to take the issues that black people are facing in Baltimore, in Maryland, and in the nation more broadly to change how politics functions for everybody. And I'll just talk about one, about two issues. Like one issue is criminal justice. So there, so we know that black men are on the wrong end of criminal justice encounters, but it's not just black men. And then the other issue is democracy more broadly, right? And then we could t- touch, uh, talk about that dynamic and connect it right back to that 1890 moment 
when there was a fight over how the democracy functions. Now, the thing is, is framing it in this way can't just be it wouldn't just be politically um, helpful. It would be empirically accurate. You know, so I, I can't talk to what they will do. That's the role of analysts. But what I can do is as a political scientist, as somebody who studies black politics, who studies American politics, I can say how politics has functioned and how it should function and how it can function in order to make our democracy better through black people. And Congressman Ifume, um Hakeem Jeffries uh, will become the first black now minority leader in the new Congress. Um, perhaps, you know, at some point in the future, the speaker's gavel will uh, pass to him. Um, does uh, Congressman Jeffries have the same opportunity that, you know, President Obama had, that uh, Governor-elect Moore has? I mean, how do you see the Democratic Party on the national level uh, responding to uh, the diversity of that leadership team? Oh, I think clearly that Hakeem Jeffries first of all, is the right person for the job. And yes, to answer your question, I think he clearly understands what his role is by being the first and by framing that in such a way that politics creates more than just a vote, but also thoughts and thinking about how we proceed and why we proceed collectively and, and together. Um, he understands, and I think all of us understand, that the black community is not monolithic. The worst thing in the world is to assume that we all think alike, act alike, and walk alike. And I can't have help but to go back to uh, Reconstruction, uh, since it's been brought up a couple of times, and the age-old question about uh, what does the Negro want? Uh, that carried from Reconstruction straight on up until the Civil Rights Movement. And today, people are asking the question, what do black people want? Well, the answer is we want what everybody else to a large extent wants. I mean, the basics of life, but we're not monolithic. And yes, we ought to be able to talk among ourselves from time to time to figure out what that is so that we can say to others, white allies and others, this is what we collectively want. If that's not the case, you'll probably get a thousand different answers to that question and, and very little progress to follow. And Kevin Slayton, um, after the Freddie Gray uprising in 2015, I remember having a conversation with Michael Cryer, who's a local business person uh, involved in uh, a number of uh, different philanthropic projects. And one of the points that he made, because there was some criticism of the black business community not uh, rising to the moment, not uh, getting involved and, and, and re responding and reacting to what had happened. Um, and he said that part of the problem is that uh, he did not sense uh, a, a great bit of credibility in the black community with the black business community. And I wonder if the elected officials, do you have any concerns about how they are perceived in the black community and the community at large uh, in, in terms of their credibility, in terms of their uh, capacity to get stuff done and to make it happen. No offense to, to Congressman Infume, of course, but, but there has been a criticism uh, in the past. And so if, if you get everybody together, uh, would there be confidence that, you know, some good ideas could emerge and, and, and some change could happen? I, I would assume that sort of criticism has always existed, will always occur. That's why Congressman Infume is critical. Um, he's earned the respect not just the constituents, but he led a national organization focused on the issues of black folk. There's a certain credibility that he just brings to the table, his presence. 
Um, he's he, he's that person in the room. Folks will have different opinions of politicians, I'm sure. Um, to Dr. Spence's point, being not being a political analyst, I do know that all politics is local. Um, and in the in the mirror of November 9th, our reality with so many African-American men at a state level, local level, one must be asking the question in my neighborhood, how do we deal, what do we do with black boys on the corners? We call them squeegee kids. I would expect, I would hope history could record that this moment in history um, was able to document the influence and the power of those persons to find some resolve. And Congressman Afume, uh, can you call this meeting? And if you do, uh, do you think there are barriers to coordination between leaders at the you know, the city level, the state level, and the federal level? Is is there uh, a, a way of, you know, finding commonality of purpose and commonality of priorities to to really move the needle? I mean, it, could, a, could a summit of that, like Dr. Slayton is, is proposing, uh, aid and abet that effort? Could you well, just ask? I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, y'all go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to Dr. Spence, but Congressman Fume, what, what do you think? Yeah. Well, I think the answer is yes, number one. Obviously, a summit like that can be called. The question becomes, calling it for the sake of calling it does not get you very far. There's got to be a well-thought-out process of what the objectives are. Why do you want people to sit down and talk? What are you prepared to, to, to exchange? What are the priorities? I mentioned when we began here, poverty, jobs, education, crime, health care the future of young people in this city, there are, there's got to be a forethought of what it is that you want to achieve. Otherwise, it will just be a meeting one day, two days or three days and nothing to follow up. Unfortunately, uh, in the instance of the Gary summit, there was not follow up. And so we have a lesson there. And I think the lesson is worth repeating, which is why I wanted to state it. The other thing, though, is that when you talk about, I should have said this earlier, elected officials, we're really talking about legislators and executives. Executives have the ability as an executive, as the president, as the governor, as the mayor, as the county executive to move things quickly, very, very quickly. The legislators try to craft and oftentimes do legislation to direct funding, but there's got to be an understanding between both groups here that whatever is decided on has to be something that is both legislative with the ability of executives to make it happen. Um, and then the last thing that I, I'd want to say here, uh, aside from the fact, of course, it can be called, is, is there a willingness to sit down and strip away all of the things that sometimes divide us or make us suspicious of one another in this society and find a way to honestly talk about what's going on? We can only do that if we have people who represent the grassroots of whatever area or, or city or town we're talking about. Leadership comes from the bottom up, never from the top down. That's People think it's the other way around, but it is not. The best ideas, the best movements, uh, and the best change comes from the bottom up. And so it's got to be something at the end of the day also that includes as many people who can represent that bottom up philosophy. 
And Lester Spence, I mean, you've got a lot of experience personally uh, in the grassroots organizing uh, space. Um, what what kind of agenda do you think uh, would would be uh, profitable? Would be would be productive uh, for such a meeting? So I I would just uh, make uh, two points. I'll go further. Uh, one point would be that uh, one of the things that we have to struggle with in this moment as compared to that that reconstruction moment is we actually do have to recenter government in all this so we do have we have black philanthropists we have black business owners we have black political officials we have black religious leaders etc cetera, etc cetera. and all those folk have different ideas but we have to come back to the idea that it's government first that it's the state that structures all this stuff so to that extent i would actually place a priority that actually requires two things one is uh, as different as we, uh, different the opinions as we all have, we have to go back to a liberal left-oriented New Deal type movement first, which means we center center this in government. And then second, I think a representative Fume is actually right in that we have and that leadership comes from the bottom up um, as opposed to the top down. But going back to that Gary moment, and I really love this show because usually on shows like this you'd have talking heads black or non-black but they don't really talk about history i think i really appreciate this show and uh, its participants for this but that gary political convention the one thing they did is they actually made it a requirement that participants had to either have run for office and want to vote or they actually had real constituencies as opposed to talking head constituencies <laughs> right they did that because they knew that at that moment you did have a lot of people who were talking but they didn't actually have real constituents. So the sec if the first component is reorienting and saying like, listen, this is a government thing, that government has an obligation and we have to reorient government to do more work for black people and do that everybody. The second thing is to say, okay, the people who come to the table, no matter what their background, they have to have real flesh and blood constituencies. They have to be able to point to black bodies and say, I really represent folk. Yeah. And then everybody else can just sit on the side. That's a, that's a really great and important point. Congressman Fumi, I know we need to let you go. We need to go to a break as well. Let me give you a chance for a final thought and uh, with our appreciation for your participation today. Well, like Professor Spence, I appreciate history. I think there are so many lessons there for all of us all of the time if we go back and look. And uh, history has always taught us that even though there's this expectation that black people all think alike, act alike, and look alike, uh, we have, we're not monolithic. And we're proud to say we're not monolithic because that's how we've been able to get things done. Going back to that Shirley Convention, you got to remember, I mean, the Gary Convention, Shirley Chisholm of New York uh, boycotted it when delegates waffled on whether or not they were to endorse her. So there was not unanimity there, but there was a real clear sense that something had to be done. And these people who took the time to be a part of that did so with without any sort of misgivings. They believed that the hour was at that moment and they had to act. And I think the hour is now, particularly here in the state of Maryland, when you look at these extremely high crime rates, the unemployment that's taking place, the decay in our urban areas, the hopelessness among many young people, and this disaggregation uh, of the larger professional class in so many different areas. The time is now. 
Well, uh, Representative Fumi, we will stay in touch and see if, uh, you know, you can pull something together and uh, we can uh, get that uh, get that conversation uh, at the level that uh, where the, the needle really can be moved. Representative Kwaizi Fume represents the 7th District. Thank you, Congressman. I appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to an archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. We'll have more with the Reverend Dr. Kevin Slayton and Dr. Lester Spence on a new deal for black men after a quick break. A reminder, our show today was pre-recorded, so we can't take any new calls or online comments. Stay with us. Welcome back to this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. The Reverend Kevin Slayton is the senior pastor at Northwood Appold United Methodist Church and an adjunct professor at Lancaster Theological Seminary. Dr. Lester Spence is the author of Knocking the Hustle and Stare in the Darkness, The Limits of Hip-Hop and Black Politics. He's a professor of political science and Africana studies at Johns Hopkins University. Because our conversation was pre-recorded, we aren't able to take any calls or online comments today. So, um, Dr. Kevin Slayton, why uh, limit this to black men? What about black women? Should that happen in a separate forum? Or uh, you, you, you have talked um, and in your piece uh, about a concentration on black men in particular. Yeah, I, I think even in this piece, I have to look, but I think I raised the fact that you couldn't do it without, you know, the head of the Baltimore City Public School System happens to be an African-American woman. So it's not exclusive uh, to only men. It was really just highlighting the overwhelming representation in these elected positions as a result, as a result of uh, the November 8th election. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it would be inclusive, but... Again, I think the the larger thread too that I was getting at was if if it sounds who could give the, them permission if that's a, who gives them permission to gather right uh, because they're trying to weigh um, the responses from the majority community. What does this? We don't want to set off alarms by doing this. And so the framing to which the congressman talks about is very critical, how you frame it. But for me, the the urgency um, requires um, not neglect of the framing, but a recognition of of the need to move. I, I often tell folks, Tom, if you come to Baltimore, just take a moment. I don't know how many folks do this on any given day during the week, particularly during the weekday. And just drive down North Avenue, particularly West. And once you cross McCullough, you you have to have some soul searching. Yeah, you see the boarded up buildings, you know, all the way from McCullough, all the way to Walbrook High School. You see a a Mm. massive amount of of my people um, just wandering. And um, I think it requires an urgent response of, of folks yeah. yeah, and Lester Spence, uh, your point about centering or recentering government—it um, perhaps is an is an extra difficult challenge at this moment in American politics, given 
the the extreme wing of the Republican Party, uh, the election deniers, the uh, the adherence to uh, Donald Trump's uh, you know malicious fiction about what happened in the 2020 election. The cynicism about government perhaps has never been worse. Uh, lack of confidence in the capacity of government to do anything. Um, what's what's the way forward in that context? Well, so first I would just say that you're right, but but there's a a, a half of it that you're not actually noting and it's much and this goes back to obama so since uh actually we can go back to like 1992 or maybe a bit further and it's been a bipartisan consensus that basically says that government should only function in one way government should function at the local level to either punitively sanction those who can't fit in the economy or government should work in the form of giving tax breaks to corporations. So that's been a bipartisan consensus. So yes, the Republican Party is particularly virulent, but and, um, but it's worth noting that bipartisan consensus is something that uh, that's that's been affecting us in general. So it's, we can talk about the Republican Party, but we should just stay there. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I, th- I think there is a lift in talking in in, in talking about black men specifically, uh, even if we just focus within black politics. But thinking about that North area, there is a there is a space, I think it's around, it might actually be around McCullough, uh, mm-hmm. where, where there is ne- currently, or at least as of a few weeks, there is a, 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 a miniature, like a commemorative space dedicated to a guy who was killed. I end up having to photo, uh, being able to photograph, stumbling across it, photographing another thing. There's basically about 60, 70 liquor bottles surrounding a, a bus stop, right? And it, in, in front of those liquor bottles is, the, is a graffiti uh, painting of an, uh, a, 30 to, a 30 year old black man. He's like an angel. The, uh, the, the angel and the liquor bottles are both dealing with, are both commemorating the passing of two brothers, one violently and the other nonviolently. I found this out because I talked to somebody when I was taking pictures of it. If we think about those two people alongside the squeegee boys as representing a certain type of population that has been left out of changes in the economy, changes in social life, and changes in political life, not as that we can create an agenda that's not just about, for example, making black men more men or putting black men at the head of households, but rather we can say this specific population is on the underside and they're on the underside for structural reasons. What about this population can we kind of think about to basically make circumstances better for everybody? Right. That's a that's a heavy lift within black communities, you know, particularly given the rise of black women. Uh, that's a heavy lift outside of black communities, given, you know, given that blacks only constitute a minority in the state of Maryland. But what I will say about Westmore is that if there's anybody who has the rhetorical capacity to articulate that in a way that all Marylanders who believe in democracy can can support, it, it would be him. And Kevin Slayton, uh, to Lester Smith's point, that heavy lift, uh, certainly for a time, uh, was often made by the black church. Mm-hmm. What's the role of the black church in this process and moving forward in this new moment when 
you know, there is a sense of uh, optimism, I think, uh, regardless of whether a summit like this could take place, although I think it's a great idea. Um, you're, you're a minister. Um, you're very involved in the black church and in politics. How do you see that role? I think the role, um, it's unfortunate we have to say that it has to go back, but it has to, to remember the power that it once wielded in, in community. Uh, again, the, the power of particularly the black church in Baltimore has been very instrumental in uh, the political elevation of many of its leaders. But the same to- cho- point with the invent of charitable choice, which is legal political mumbo jumbo for how we unblur the lines of the idea of separation of church and state, the, the black church has been most hampered. So in an effort to create space, opportunity for quote-unquote faith-based institutions to engage governmental uh, other agencies, um, there were some restrictions created. And as a result, a lot of the work that the black church traditionally did in engaging community, it doesn't do anymore because, one, it's been professionalized. Why should Church A go out and do what Church B down the street now gets a grant to do it? Or what the church traditionally did, which was just show up, um, they have not been certified or you don't have the professional credentials to engage your community in that way. And so I think that's why I ended the piece using scripture, the story of uh, Ezekiel, you know, we know, saw the wheel rolling and this valley of dry bones. North Avenue is sort of a place where you can imagine envisioning this type of biblical text, but taking away from it the lesson that the only way these bones can live is it requires that the person who's going through there, based on the scripture, is willing to sit amongst them and to breathe life, but in this case, to speak life. So we have to find a way as a faith community, as well as a broader community, to um, to be intentional about going into those spaces, uh, meeting our brothers and sisters where they are, uh, and having them be a part of the planning of how we come out of this together. So the church has a major role to play. And Lester Spence, uh, we'll give you the last uh, word here. Given the the you know long history of uh, grassroots activism uh, really resulting in uh, positive change, I mean, Martin Luther King gave Lyndon Johnson the, the cover he needed uh, to get the civil rights uh, bill passed, to get the voting rights bill passed, uh, to have... Uh, even even programs like Medicare you know, put in place during his administration. Um, do you see, given the the uh, Black Lives Matter movement uh, that uh, became newly focused uh, after the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, in the summer of 2020, do do you see uh, an activist movement um, that can help to recenter politics uh, in the in the American conversation? Well, I think that you know, over the last, say, tw- uh, maybe almost tw- maybe 10 to 20 years, there have been two things that we've begun to focus on that ha- that come as the result of activism. One is uh, income inequality that comes from Occupy Wall Street and here Occupy Baltimore. And then the other is uh, police violence. And that comes from Black Lives Matter more broadly. But here the organizing 
both before and after Freddie Gray. Like if you think about the organizing around Tyrone West, for example. So activists have already done work to, in order to change the ideational uh, uh, plane through which we can work. So then I'm hoping that we can actually, or folks who do that, can continue to do that in the future because that window's kind of sort of closed. Dr. Lester Spence is a professor of political science and Africana studies at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you, Lester. I really appreciate it. Always great to talk to you. Oh, it was a great conversation. Thank you. Dr. Kevin Slayton is the senior pastor at Northwood Apple United Methodist Church and an adjunct professor at Lancaster Theological Seminary. Kevin, it's terrific to have you here. I appreciate it. Tom, thanks for having me. Reverend Slayton's essay in the Baltimore Sun that served as the launching point for our conversation is called When Black Men Gather. We've got a link posted on the Midday webpage at WIPR.org. That's it for us today on this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. Have a great day.